good morning. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, it's good to be here. In a few weeks' time, we're going to begin a new sermon series on the letter to the Hebrews. And I'm delighted to announce that this is going to be introduced for us by uh, a Hebrews specialist from the university, from the Divinity Department, uh, called David Moffitt. I uh, had a little sort of seminar with him, just him and me, uh, for two hours on Friday morning. And I can tell you, you're in for a treat. He really does know what he's talking about. And he was particularly pleased that we have placed this series in between the first and second halves of what we've called the Exodus Express. It just seemed to him a very happy confluence of, of ideas. And he was trying to give us credit for it by, really, it's just, it's just God's timing because it's just worked out like that. But in between teaching series, we like to address topical subjects and just scriptures that the Lord seems to be drawing to our attention. And I've got one of those for you today. I like to, I, I think that this is something that um, afflicts most of us from time to time. I think it's a major cause of burnout and personal failure in our lives. I think it's a feeling which, if it gets hold of us, can rob us completely of that sense of well-being and purpose that God intends us to enjoy. I'm not suggesting that we as a church suffer particularly badly from this. But since it does seem to be such a common experience and such a powerful one, I thought it might be worth taking a Sunday morning to begin addressing it directly. I'm talking about disappointment. And that might seem like a, a strange subject for a sermon, but I think if we, um, if we think for a moment about a simple dictionary definition of the word, it becomes pretty clear how important it is. Disappointment. Depression or discouragement as a result of the failure of one's hopes or expectations. Depression or discouragement as the result of the failure of one's hopes or expectations. Well, the Bible constantly counsels us to be joyful and encouraged. So depression and discouragement seem pretty much the opposite of what God wants for us, his children. So there's probably two questions that we, we need to try and go some way to answering. Firstly, how do we avoid disappointment? And secondly, how do we deal with it if it takes hold? And when I say take hold, I really mean that because disappointment is something that can either be experienced and dealt with fairly quickly or it's something that can really drag us down and keep us there. I've even met people who've adopted it as part of their, uh, their character. You sort of know before you ask these people, uh, how was so-and-so? And they say, well, such and such was all right, but... There's always a but. Well, in Psalm 42, the psalmist recognizes with shocking frankness the devastation that disappointment can wreak in our lives. Here's a little snippet. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Now, for me, it's especially noticeable that that last phrase, which is actually a repeated refrain within the, um, the poem, is expressed as a question, not a statement. In my own experience, speaking as an optimistic sort of a chap, the reasons for disappointment are not always obvious. Disappointment seems to prefer to lurk in the shadows 
a sort of disabling, depressive, and discouraging background force, which affects our mood, however overtly positive the circumstances of life may be. The word itself, if we break it down a bit, gives a strong clue as to how disappointment works. Disappointment. In other words, we've made an appointment in our, in our imagined future that isn't met. We had expectations, but they came to nothing. And I think there are probably four main areas where we can experience disappointment. There might be others. Disappointment with people. Disappointment with events and outcomes. Disappointment with ourselves. And disappointment with God himself. So let's start with a look at some of the Bible's wisdom on avoiding disappointment in the first place. And then I want to conclude with a very brief recovery plan in case we do find ourselves disappointed. Number one, disappointment with people. The best passage I know on this is uh, John 2, 23 to 25. So let's go there right now. Jesus says at this point, just turned out the money changers from the temple. And when he's challenged to produce a sign, a miracle to prove his right to do this, his response was, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. They assumed that they meant the physical temple that they were standing in. But as John helpfully explains, he was actually referring to his own body, his forthcoming death and resurrection. So with that in mind, let's read these three short verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now John is making a clear link in his narrative between Jesus' expectation of betrayal and death and this comment about knowing people. In other words, the reason he didn't take them at face value was because he understood that some of these very people would be baying for his blood in the not-too-distant future. This, by the way, is a very important passage for anyone engaged in or thinking of engaging in pastoral ministry. Because verse 23 speaks of what we would tend to see as successful ministry. He was doing signs. People were believing in him, at least on some level. But he didn't trust them. When I used to work in the crime squad, um, the Met Police, a common exchange between colleagues used to go like this. Come on, just trust me. I know you. Why on earth would I trust you? That, in that circumstance, was just heavy-handed banter. But something very real along exactly the same lines was happening between Jesus and these people. There is, in fact, something of a pun in the Greek, which could be crudely rendered, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. We want to believe the best of people, and to an extent that's quite right. We certainly don't want to go around suspecting evil motives in everyone we meet. But people are not always what they seem. They're not even always what they think they are. And there is a temptation in flattery that we are always wise to resist. And make no mistake, success in ministry can be very flattering indeed. People who don't know themselves very well will often flock to a successful ministry. But it would be very unwise to assume any depth of commitment just because they say and do the right thing. 
I believe Jesus' response here echoes 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. There was something much more loving and profound happening here than Jesus simply being, in the immortal words of Mary Poppins, extremely stubborn and suspicious. The very next thing that happens, if you read on into chapter 3, is that Nicodemus visiting him at night time, you know, a leading Pharisee, just the enemy. And you may remember that rather than putting him off, as we might have expected him to do, Jesus engages Nicodemus in a deep discussion of his own saving mission and the necessity of being born again. Now, the reason Jesus didn't entrust himself to these guys is that he actually knew what was in their hearts, actually much better than they did. And the reason he knew was not because he was God. That's a cop-out. He'd put aside all that godly power when he became a man. It was simply because he was in touch with God. He was accessing the spiritual gift that we call the word of knowledge as the Holy, Holy Spirit reveals to a human being things not visible to the naked eye. If Jesus had been going by appearances, he would certainly not have trusted Nicodemus. But he did. And he was not disappointed. Because we read on in, in John 7, it's Nicodemus who speaks up for Jesus in the ruling council. In John 19, Nicodemus is one who provides the, the, um, the anointing spices for Jesus' burial. So Jesus wasn't being like Michael Banks, extremely stubborn and suspicious. A suspicious nature could have saved him from trusting too much, but it would have crippled him from trusting enough. Think of the level of trust that he displayed towards his disciples, handing on to them after just three years' training a mission that surely only Jesus was qualified to accomplish. But of course, in reality, he wasn't blindly trusting a bunch of flawed human beings at all. Why would he? He knew them. But because he trusted first in God, he was then able to trust with God. The key to good human relationships is a good relationship with God. If we expect too much of people, guess what? Of course they'll let us down. That's not their fault, it's ours. But if we expect too little of them, then we're kind of disappointed before we even start. If Jesus had turned Nicodemus away, he would have lost a valued disciple. If he hadn't trusted his disciples, could he even have gone to the cross? What we see in Jesus in John 2 and 3 is not simple distrust, and it's not simple trust, nor essentially is it some mysterious middle ground between the two. It is extreme trust on the one hand, where God indicates it's appropriate, and none at all where God says don't touch. Neat trick if you can do it. But if we can learn to, then people will never again disappoint us. They might flake out, burn out, sweep out, storm out. And they will. We're all human after all. But we won't be disappointed by that because we're only relying on them for what God has told us we can expect from them. We won't be knocked off course because we haven't made any of those appointments in our imagined future which actually won't be met. Two, disappointment with the way things turn out. The outturn, as my friends in the business world annoyingly put it. When we feel, to use a charming London expression, gutted, when we feel gutted, 
is not always because anyone in particular let us down. Sometimes things simply don't work out as we'd hoped. A house purchase falls through. Financial troubles hit. A business or ministry endeavour fails. Uh, we miss a flight. We, uh, a, a trip is cancelled. Those things can really knock the stuffing out of us emotionally. We feel gutted. However much we might tell ourselves, the Lord must have something better for me. It just doesn't feel like it. If we're honest, we're really disappointed. Proverbs 13.12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And it certainly feels that way. Sometimes it feels as though we, we did... Um, I beg your pardon, I'm running on ahead. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The question is, how can we avoid that kind of disappointment? Proverbs 16.3 says... Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Well, that's in the Bible, so it must be true. But I don't think it does always feel that way. Sometimes it feels more as if we, we committed our work to the Lord and our plans have been, well, smashed to matchwood with a big hammer. Perhaps a parallel verse can cast some light on the problem. Psalm 37.5 says something that's very similar, but it's subtly and importantly different. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. So why the difference between the two? The Proverbs are eye-catching, often provocative sound bites, as it were, subjects for meditation, like an exam question. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Discuss. But the Psalms offer a deeper expression of the human condition before God. And it seems to me this second verse gives a much more nuanced, enlightening version of very much the same principle. Where we might fall foul of the, the proverb is perhaps a question of attitude. We can read it as if it was enough to make a plan and commit it to the Lord and then we can expect everything to work out. But that may not be enough. The psalm suggests a more profound process of commitment, a whole way, the way ahead, the way we're going to walk for the rest of our lives, is first committed to God. Then we actively trust in him as we step it through, and God works on our behalf. So perhaps what the proverb really means is also a process that works from the general into the specific. We commit the whole work to God to begin with, in other words, we determine only to do what he's asking of us, and then we watch with awe as everything falls into place. As with this sermon series, just happening to fall in between the two halves of Exodus. One of my little hot verses right now, Ephesians 2.10, puts it like this. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think one of the principal causes of disappointment in the way things turn out is that we put the cart before the horse. We decide what we want to happen. We work out a plan that ought to produce the desired results and then we pray God will bless it. What the Bible teaches is a much more submitted model than that, where we begin by simply coming to wait on God Commit our walk to him and see what he says. He might give us a plan. 
or he might send us away to go and write one. But the process begins not with our desires, but with his desires. And of course, famously, the verse before Psalm 37.5, as all you context freaks would expect, offers a commentary on this process. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. An often repeated message in the scripture is that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If we want a fulfilled life, a life where we constantly feel we're getting our heart's desires, we have to begin by delighting ourselves in the Lord. This verse is not suggesting, absolutely not suggesting, that we worship God for a bit, that's delighting ourselves in the Lord, and then he gives us a Ferrari, because it's what we wanted. Now, on the contrary, it's counseling us to address the serious work of bending our will to a point that few of us ever reach, the point where our delight is God himself. In that place, when God's law is truly written on our hearts, he will give us the desires of our heart. Philippians 2.13 puts it like this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he needs to change our will before he can really get us to work. But he's constantly at work in us to do both. As Jason was reminding us last week, our place is to surrender to that process. But, fuzzy old bean, some will say, what about your favorite thing, the guppodge, the great unremembered promises of Jesus? What about um, those promises of Jesus, those great inspiring promises of Jesus, like John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble? Well, doesn't that mean that things sometimes just go wrong? Yeah, I think it means exactly that. But when that happens, we won't really mind, because our goal was never success. It was obedience. If we're motivated not by the end result, but by the process, by engaging with Jesus in the good works God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, then we won't be disappointed when things don't turn out as we might have expected. So that's disappointment with people, disappointment with outturns. Thirdly, disappointment with ourselves. I don't know about you, but whenever I handle a situation badly or find myself wasting time or eat too much late at night or a host of other things that you could bundle together and call sin, I feel disappointed in myself. There's no one else to blame. I believe that disappointment in oneself can be one of the most debilitating and discouraging forces we ever encounter in the spiritual life. Because when you're disappointed in yourself, it just feels as if there's no point trying. No point trying to get a grip on your tongue so you don't say things you don't mean. Or on your thought life so you don't go places you don't want to go. Your eating habits. No point trying to serve God at all. After all, what have you got to offer? And of course, when you're in that frame of mind, just to drop a fresh element into this whole rich mix, we have an enemy who goes by the name of Satan, which means accuser. Every single negative thought we ever have He's right there to agree. Yeah. He'll point out as much fresh evidence as you're prepared to listen to against you. 
He probably has a mission statement up on the wall of his office. Wherever there is disappointment, I'll be there. When people let us down, the devil will surely be there to accuse them to us. When stuff has simply gone wrong, he'll surely be there to whisper accusations to us about both God and everyone else involved. When we let ourselves down, of course he's keen to rub our noses in it. And when we come to think about disappointment with God, well, he's been accusing God to humanity ever since the Garden of Eden. Did God say, oh, that's not true? The best way I know of avoiding, avoiding disappointment with ourselves is to know ourselves. At the start of one of the great passages on body life in, in Romans 12, Paul is actually addressing a specific problem, but I do think that verses 2 and 3 also express a general principle. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, he's not suggesting here that we should undervalue ourselves to do the sort of uh, Uriah Heap, I'm ever so humble, Mr. Copperfield sort of thing. No, he's suggesting that we take an honest inventory, a warts and all um, assessment of ourselves, not to kid ourselves. In the immortal words of Dirty Harry, spoken from behind a Magnum 44, a man has to know his limitations. If we honestly recognize our weaknesses, we can begin to notice and avoid those trigger points for failure. Once I realize that sitting up late at night watching news programs is the time when I am most likely to stuff my face with crisps and stuff, I could plan on more nights reading in bed instead. Once I realize that a lot of the time I waste in a week is spent playing games on my iPad, I can plan to Leave it in the bedroom on my days off. As we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, as verse 2 suggests, we become more aware of God's purposes for us. He has wonderful plans for every one of us, but they're likely to get derailed if we don't know our own limitations. And of course, it's important that we don't only look at the bad side of ourselves, or we could quickly write ourselves off as a hopeless case. Isn't the message, the great message of the gospel, precisely that Jesus came to die for hopeless cases like us and reconcile us with God? And as we just said, he's, he's at work in us even now to will and to work for God's pleasure. We fail sometimes even to want to do right, but not to worry, says Philippians 2.13. He is working on our will as well as on our actions. And as Hebrews 7.25 puts it, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Remember, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. So we shouldn't give up. He doesn't. It would just be handy if we would learn from our mistakes. We are supposed to be getting better at this stuff. And as we cooperate with God, as part of his church, 
see the rest of Romans 12, we can and will get better and better. I have said it before, and I will say it again. The first step to wholeness is healthy membership of a healthy church. And I might add it's also probably steps 2 to 22 as well, but that's a whole other sermon. Four, now we are racing towards the final furlong. Disappointment with God. Don't really want to say much about this at all, except to point out that shocking as it might be, it really does exist. And if we are honest with ourselves, most of us have been there and done that. Although I confess I haven't yet seen the t-shirt. I suggest that if you've never felt disappointed with God, you probably don't know yourself very well. Or you're keeping God at such a distance that you're not experiencing him as you should. If we relate to God as our father, as Jesus taught us, there must come moments when the relationship is strained. Times when we don't understand what he's doing. Times we think we know best. Times when he fails to meet our expectations. We haven't time to read it all today, but the psalm we began with, Psalm 42, dares to ask God, why have you forgotten me? The psalmist is remembering happier times, but that's not how he feels now. Right now he feels low. He feels disappointed with God. I really think we'd do ourselves a favor if, like the psalmists, we would learn to bring to the Lord how we really feel instead of what we think he wants to hear. Even though we know we must be in the wrong and he must be in the right, we do well to follow Job's example and come before him honestly, humbly but honestly, not pretending everything is fine when he knows perfectly well it's not. Well, the Psalms encourage that kind of honesty. If you don't believe me, read them. And finally, recovering from disappointment. Among the things, the resources I came across in my preliminary reading for this talk was a blog, which I found very helpful. I'd be very happy to send you the link. But if you Google feels like home, all one word, feels like home, and then disappointment, it'll come up. What the writer suggests is a six-step program which covers the following stages. These are just the broad brushstrokes. Number one, believe in God's plan. Whatever we feel like, the big truths are still true, like those truths we've just been talking about this morning. Step two, grieve. That might sound surprising, but any psychologist will tell you we cannot move on from a sense of loss until we do grieve the loss. Three, pray. The kind of honesty with God we were just talking about is an entirely appropriate reaction when we're disappointed. But notice that the author wisely places this prayer after the grieving, when our thoughts can begin to coalesce into something a little more coherent than, ah! Four, listen and wait. Satan wants to use our disappointment to drive a wedge between us and God. Let's not give him the satisfaction. Listen and wait. Five, search for the good. If it is true, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for us, then there must be a positive to be found, even if it's only recognition of our own wrong expectations that led us to be disappointed in the first place, those appointments in our imagined future that didn't get met. And lastly, believe in yourself. 
Mm. That's uncomfortable for a Brit, isn't it? This has been a sad time, maybe a time of failure, but God has chosen and saved you, is currently at work in you, and will never give up on you. You can afford to believe in yourself. Now, I hope all that doesn't sound terribly self-indulgent, because to me that looks like a very sensible and biblical program for recovery from disappointment. And frankly, the sooner we can break out of it, the better. But the point in that six-step program I really want to emphasize is number two, grieve. We Christians can be terribly prone to unreality. In a way, I hope we've seen the psalmists never were. We, we tend to think it's somehow dishonoring to God to admit things like weakness, sadness, unbelief, disappointment. The Bible indicates that on the contrary, it is essential to face those things head on. Hebrews 4.13, notice how we're getting a lot of Hebrews into this, teaches us that every created thing is naked and exposed to him to whom we have to give account. So there's no point in covering things up like Adam and Eve in the garden. That's only adding dishonesty to a load of other faults and failings that God can see anyway. We can bring everything we are and everything we've done confidently to God. And that includes our disappointment with others, with events, with ourselves, and even with him. I'm going to close with a short reading again from Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.